And good evening to you all. Welcome back, finally, welcome back to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy class. So this is session number six, just in case you can't remember back, uh, you know, in like the dim mists of yesteryear. Uh, it's been three weeks now. I, of course, was hoping to have class last week uh, after um, uh, having missed just the one week for Texmoot, but uh, then I got, like, I was f totally felled last Wednesday night. I developed a, a fever that got higher and higher over the course of the night, and it was not good. So I think canceling class was probably, probably for the best. But I'm better now. So that's good. Got some rest. Feeling better. Um, but uh, anyhow, so tonight we are going to finish our discussion of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the book. Now, we still have one session after this. So you may remember, this is the extra class. <laughs> we didn't quite, shocking to everyone I know, we didn't quite get through all of the discussion that I wanted to get through in the first five sessions that I had planned on the book. Um, so we're extending it to this session in order to finish the book. And then we have the last session, which I had always planned to do, one last session, to talk about the original radio series. Uh, because, of course, this was a radio broadcast before it was published as a book. So I want to kind of... Having talked about the book, I want to um, uh, take a session to, to, to look at the radio, well, listen to the radio broadcast parts of it, uh, and talk about that and sort of see, uh, specifically be doing some comparison and contrast. Like, what is that thing, right? What is that story that was broadcast in the, as the original radio drama? And how does it differ from the book that we have? Because I found uh, the comparison really interesting. So I wanted to spend some time talking to you guys about that. So that's what we're going to do next week, January 31st. And then the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, class will be done. We will be completely... Um, um, we'll be completely finished with Douglas Adams, at least for now, uh, and ready to move on to our next segment, our next class, which is, of course, The War of the Ring, Volume 3 of the History of the Lord of the Rings, continuing on our discussion, having done The Return of the Shadow, and then most recently The Treason of Isengard, we are now continuing our march, our stately and thorough march through the History of Middle-earth series. Uh, so The War of the Ring is up next, and I am... Uh, so the, um, oh, Tony asks a great question. Wait, let me answer this question first. Tony says, are we going to talk about the film at all? Why? Yes, we are going to talk about the film as well, but, um, we're going to have a whole different session on that. You may remember that I have mentioned the Mythgard Movie Club, which has started up this year. Um, they're going to do a session on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to join in with them, uh, and we're going to talk about it together. That's coming up in... Next month, in February, um, I will have a specific date to announce later on when I remember that. But that's in February. Uh, so we're going to do a Mythgard Movie Club on the film. So we will talk about the film there in that context. Um, anyway, but then on to the War of the Ring. So the plan for the War of the Ring. Um, I'm going to be away again the final week of February. Um, so my plan is to... Uh, now that I had to push things back by a week uh, because of being sick last week. So we're going to be finished 
on the 31st, right next week, January 31st, will be the, the end of this class. We're going we're gonna to take one week off, so we'll be off on the 7th, and we're going to start the War of the Ring uh, class on the 14th. So we'll meet on the 14th and the 21st, and then I'll be away on the 28th, and then I'll be back at the beginning of March, and we'll carry on through there. I should be here through all of March, I believe, um, and most of April, too. So, exactly. Valentine's Day. Isn't that romantic, Sharon? I mean, what could be more romantic than, you know, uh, uh, starting a discussion of the War of the Ring, right? It's just what everybody, uh, what everybody's dates wish that they could be doing on Valentine's Day. Uh, I totally hadn't thought of that, Sharon, but I mean, I, 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 I really, I can't think of an improvement. So, um, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be awesome. So yes. Okay. So on Valentine's day, February 14th, that will be the official starting date of the war of the ring. We'll do our first two sessions one week off, uh, because of my travel and then back for March. And I'm, it's going to be a while. I'm not, I haven't, I haven't finished mapping it out yet. Um, but, uh, it's gonna, it's going to take us until summer probably to finish up the war of the ring or pretty close to summer. I would imagine, um, if we get finished this side of June, I'll be frankly surprised, but who knows what, what'll happen. Um, so, uh, cool. All right. So that's the plan. That's the, 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 the road before us here. And speaking of the road before us, um, I wanted to mention an upcoming event in April, um, which I am super excited about. Uh, Mythgard Institute and Signum University are organizing our first ever event over in Europe. We are crossing the Atlantic and we are doing a conference uh, at London Moot or Brit Moot conference uh, on the 28th of April. Um, So we're going to be in London. Uh, on the 28th of April, we're going to be doing a one-day conference like we've been doing in different places around um, uh, around America. I really hope that uh, many of our European friends, I should say our long-suffering European friends, uh, who you know usually have things scheduled at radically inconvenient hours to them, uh, are going to be um, uh, are 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 we're we're going to do a session, you know, a whole conference just for you at a reasonable hour and everything, uh, over there. So I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm planning to come over, uh, hope to get to meet a bunch of you over there. Um, so spread the word, you know, uh, among people that, you know, over, you know, in the UK, of course, especially, but really, you know, I hope, uh, we'll be able to get to see, uh, folks from, uh, from elsewhere, uh, in Europe as well. But that's the plan. So the 28th of April, uh, is, uh, going to be London, London moot. And that's going to be, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be really fun. I can't wait for that. Okay. One last thing that I wanted to, uh, to just kind of acknowledge, uh, especially in this, with this group, of course, um, is the passing of Ursula Le Guin, which I just heard about, uh, yesterday. I think it just happened yesterday, didn't it? Um, uh, but anyway, just, you know, I was, of course, on the one hand, you know, saddened, of course, to hear about the passing of Ursula Le Guin. She's lived such a long and full life. It's hard to see her passing as, as, as you know, sort of tragic or wholly unexpected. Um, but really just to, just to take a moment to celebrate the, the life and accomplishments of truly one of the, one of the greatest authors of the last hundred years, Ursula Le Guin, um, is absolutely amazing. And of course, I had the, um, the, uh, the great 
pleasure of uh, talking about one of her books with you guys. Uh, recently, last year, we did The Dispossessed, which is a book I'd never read before. Um, Ursula Le Guin, you know, I, I find myself continually in awe of the genius of Ursula Le Guin when I am reading and talking about her books. Um, she's not one of my favorite authors. In, in, uh, I, she's not like comfort reading for me, and I don't mean like because she's so hard or something like that. I, I like hard books. Um, She's never an author that I, I, I especially... I, her books don't bring me delight in the same way that many other uh, books do. And yet, I am, I am I, as I say, I'm always in awe. She is so brilliant, and her books are so smart and so good. I love talking about them uh, and thinking about them. Uh, and uh, I've really enjoyed... Uh, I, as I said, I really enjoyed reading them together. Uh, and I, uh, I, I surely hope that we'll uh, get a chance to do some more Ursula Le Guin together uh, later on. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so just just wanted to sort of acknowledge that, you know, and, and just to to kind of you know have a moment of 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 you know to kind of pause and 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 recognize the uh, and not just recognize the passing, but again, as I said, just celebrate the life recognize the achievements of somebody who has really been um, one of the most important figures, especially in our world, right? In the world of of fantasy and science fiction literature, there are very few figures uh, that are more important, more significant than Ursula Le Guin, uh, all things considered. Uh, And uh, it's just, uh, uh, again, can't say enough about it. So... um, yeah, yeah. She did. Joyce, that's a good way of saying it. Joyce said she always made one furiously to think. Absolutely. Uh, I do find myself thinking furiously uh, when, I am, when I am reading Le Guin. That's a great way to, uh, uh, to think about it. So, um, very good. Okay. Um, let me do one quick thing here. Just making one adjustment to my little windows over here. Uh, okay, good. All right. Excellent. Oop. Hang on. I almost just <laughs> I just hit the wrong button. Almost uh, shut things down. That's not good. All right. Um, well, let's get going. Cause here, brace yourselves. Right. I've got I've got I've got a shocking thing to say. It is my goal to not only finish the book tonight, but to let you go early. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we'll we'll get through everything uh, 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 fairly 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 quickly tonight. That's my that's my plan. Um, uh, Arthur mentions that um, uh, just to remind everybody about the chat room if you guys want to chat amongst yourselves there are a couple different options for that um, but the sort of the traditional spot for Mythgard Academy students who want to hang out and talk about me behind my back uh, place bets on how far I'll get and that kind of thing uh, and just generally uh, you know sort of enjoy conversation together as well as making comments to me um, uh, there's the the chat room that's available there on the webpage uh, for the Hitchhiker's Guide class. Um, there should be a little chat here button on the bottom uh, that you can join. So, um, all right, that's where you can find it. Um, it's true, and puns, Arthur, and that's a warning, really, from Arthur. I mean, you should know that you will be you will be bombarded. Well, bombarded is that fair? No, I bet that is fair. Uh, <laughs> with puns and things. Um, anyway, okay. All right. Here we go. Ready? So, 
I don't even remember where we were like three weeks ago. So let's just pick up with my first slide here. Trillian burst in through the door from her cabin. My white mice have escaped, she said. An expression of deep worry and concern failed to cross either of Zaphod's faces. Nuts to your white mice, he said. Trillian glared an upset glare at him and disappeared again. It is possible that her remark would have commanded greater attention had it been, had it been generally realized that human beings were only the third most intelligent life form present on, on the planet Earth, instead of, as was generally thought by most independent observers, the second. Okay, so once again, of course, you know, there are several things that we can see, several kind of angles at which we can, you know, uh, from which we can talk about this passage, right? On the one hand, one of the things that we've been looking at throughout the book is the narrator's voice, right? And sort of the point of view of the narrator, thinking about who is the narrator. Not, not that I'm trying to identify the narrator with a character or something like that. I don't think it need be the answer. We, there need be an answer like that necessarily. I'm just saying, what is the point of view of the narrator? What is the from what position is the narrator speaking? Um, and this is a this is a kind of a um, uh, this is kind of a classic narrator point of view, right? Um, first of all, the that would smug be going too far? I'm not sure that it would be going too far, right? Um, the um, uh, the 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 smugness with which the narrator reveals that he knows so much more than everybody else, right? It is possible that her remark would have commanded greater attention. Uh, so the narrator is drawing our attention to the inner significance of a comment which seems to everybody present to be inconsequential, right? Okay, you know, nuts to your white mice, one can uh, kind of get behind Zaphod's point of view right there, right? Um, the fact that the white mice that she was keeping in her cabin have escaped when they crash into Magrathea does not seem to be extremely important, right? Um, unless, of course, like Zaphod, you are Trillian's boyfriend and should be arguably taking, it more ser- taking her feelings more seriously, but apart from that, um, it's... Um, it doesn't seem very important, right? And then here's the narrator immediately kind of tipping us the wink and saying, okay, this is really important, right? And they don't realize how important this is, but this, uh, 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 greater attention should be paid uh, to the comment that she, the remark that she just made about her white mice. But then, of course, in explaining why more attention should be paid to that remark, he gets all cryptic, right? Again, in that sort of like, because he, you know, uh, uh, had it been generally realized that human beings were only the third most intelligent life form present on the planet Earth instead of the second, right? Um, yeah. Condescending in the modern sense, David? Yeah, I think that that's... Uh, yes. Yes. Um, condescending in the modern sense of... Uh, continually drawing attention to his own superiority, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Tony. It's an insider versus outsider thing, and uh, the narrator is always very much an insider, right? Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we, of course, get more on this in a similar kind of 
voice. This, uh, as you see, this, is, this this passage doesn't follow right after. I've grouped them together, um, but it's some twenty pages until we get further explanation of this. It is an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. Uh, for instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The wheel, New York, wars, and so on. While all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed that they were far more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. Curiously enough, the dolphins had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth, and had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for tidbits, so they eventually gave up, and left the Earth by their own means shortly before the Vogons arrived. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner, but in fact the message was this, so long and thanks for all the fish. In fact, there was only one species on the planet more intelligent than dolphins, and they spent a lot of their time in behavioral research laboratories, running round inside wheels, and conducting frighteningly elegant and subtle experiments on man. The fact that, once again, man completely misinterpreted this relationship was entirely according to these creatures' plans. Okay, so we have, uh, once more again, that, uh, that tone of, uh, David, as you say, not only smugness, but condescension, right? Um, <laughs> Stephen is wondering if the narrator could be a dolphin, right? Uh, possibly, possibly. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, so um, we see a similar pattern of course in both of these things right think of the similarity of this to other patterns that we've seen in the book remember the very beginning right Um, the very beginning in which we you know the sort of presumptions that we have in favor of the earth, right? Our understandable, but in the big picture, slightly comical tendency to assume that the earth is significant, right? That it matters in the big picture, right? Um, instead of being an, an unimportant and unfashionable, you know, backwater in the galaxy. Um again, we have this view of, like, well, obviously the Earth is all there is, right? And, you know, human society is the whole show. And so, you know, we have this view of things, which turns out, of course, to be something like the opposite, right? Not exactly, but it's it's not a reversal. Um, but it is still kind of an inversion of our perspective, right? That is, with Earth as the centerpiece and everything else is just sort of the backdrop, right? Whereas really everything else, of course, is so much more important. Um, so there it's almost more of a, a sort of a shifting of, not just a shifting of focus, but a shifting of scale, right? A sort of zooming out and zooming in, right? We spend so much time zoomed in on the Earth that we think it's the whole picture. But then, uh, you know, one of the things that, one of the, the, the things the narrative does to us there in those first few paragraphs is to push us back, right? So that we're out further and further. And we see, the, and the further out we go, and the more we see of the big picture the smaller Earth looks and the sillier uh, begins to, to, to seem the assumption that made it seem so big and so important in the first place. This is similar in one sense 
Um, but it's also, it has that different dynamic of actual reversal, right? Um, so we look at our relationship with dolphins, right? And we assume that we are more intelligent than dolphins. Uh, and, you know, you, you, I love the way that he, you know, he says that you know, the dolphins all, all, always believe that they were more intelligent than we for exactly the same reasons, right? We don't disagree about facts. We just disagree about the significance of the facts. Um, we have accomplished all of these things, right? We have achieved all of these things, whereas the dolphins are just, have just been mucking about in the water having a good time. Uh, and, um, but that proves to the dolphins, right, that they are the ones who are more intelligent uh, and uh, getting the humans to be their servants, right? Um, yeah, so everything gets everything gets gets flipped around. Nothing has changed, right? But everything gets kind of flipped around. The second flip is even more pronounced, right? Is even more um, radical, as of course it turns out that the the first most intelligent species on planet Earth were the white laboratory rats, upon which uh, we were experimenting in behavioral research laboratories, um, but which, of course, the narrator here reveals that their presence in behavioral research laboratories was in order for them uh, to conduct frighteningly elegant and subtle experiments on man. Um, so, again, same situation, but completely reversed. And this is a little bit different, right? Um, well, no, it's not exactly different. It's still, it's, 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 it's directly parallel to the situation with the dolphins, right? Um, the reversal is achieved in both cases, not by a mere contradiction of facts, right? Um, that is to say, there's, there's no argument that actually dolphins had achieved much more than it seemed they had achieved, right? That like, the point isn't, it's not like a dolphin version of, um, for some reason, the parallel that's sticking in my head right now uh, is the movie Toy Story, right? Um, that is to say, the concept that toys, right, have this secret life. So, like, while you're not looking, they're having all of these interactions and doing all these things and moving around, and they can do all this. But when you're looking at them, it just seems like they're inactive, right? Um, that's not the kind of thing that he's saying about dolphins. He's not arguing that dolphins have a secret society to which man is not privy. He's not saying that, uh, you know, if only we had the eyes to see it, if only we could know, um, we would be able to see the amazingly, um, uh, you know, sort of the mind-boggling accomplishments of, of, of dolphins. There's some hint of that, right? That is, they clearly have power of interstellar travel independently um, because they did leave the planet Earth by their own means. So there's some hint that, in fact, they do get up to, to more achievement in secret and in private than we know of or give them credit for. But that's not the point of the joke, right? That's not where the joke really lies. Um, it's not that when we're not paying attention to them, dolphins are actually doing even smarter things than we are. It's just a, a, a challenge of the valuation of what, of what accomplishment means. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, there's no, there's no, um, differentiation in what the facts are just in their overall 
significance. And the same, and we get the same thing, of course, repeated, uh, as I say, more forcefully in the case of the white mice. Um, there's no challenge to the. It's not that the mice are secretly building cities or doing something. It's just that. While we are, as we are, exper- we are only, it turns out, experimenting on them because our experiments on them are part of their uh, frighteningly elegant and subtle experiments upon us uh, at the same time. Um, so, our, when this is revealed to Arthur, I'm going to go back to. Uh, conversation between Arthur and Slarty Bartfast. So we, we took some time before to look ahead. Remember last class was the class about the messianic prophecies, right? Of the computer that is to come and all that stuff, you know, looking at the, um, um, you know, all of the, the, the stuff with the computer and the answer and the question, right? Um, and the insistence that the book has on that, uh, messianic tone, right? Although, you know, uh, Lundquil and Fuch may think that uh, the conversation is getting needlessly messianic, um, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, deep thought clearly disagrees, right? And is persistently messianic. Um, anyway, back to uh, Slarty Bartfast and Arthur. I was most upset to hear of its destruction says Slarty Bartfast about the earth. You were upset. Yes, five minutes later and it wouldn't have mattered so much. It was a quite shocking cock-up. Huh? said Arthur. The mice were furious. The mice were furious. Oh, yes, said the old man mildly. Yes, well, so I expect were the dogs and cats and duck-billed platypuses, but, ah, but they hadn't paid for it, you see, had they? Look, said Arthur, would it save you a lot of time if I just gave up and went mad now? Arthur's reference to madness there at the end, right, um, is, uh, points towards that same dynamic of reversal, right? Uh, what he is feeling, what makes him feel like he is insane, right, in listening to Slarty Bartfast talk about this, is the way in which Slotty Bartfast is so uh, uh, casually, comfortably assuming the understanding of the kind of reversal that we've just been seeing, right? Um, it's obvious that the mice were really in charge of planet Earth, right? Um, that seems practically to go without saying, of course, to the Magrathian, um, uh, whereas to Arthur, it makes him doubt his own sanity because he's doubting his own frame of reference, right? Is it, you know, like he feels like he's going crazy because I guess it's, it's, is that, should this make sense, right? Uh, the mice had paid for the earth. How is that, how is that even, uh, how is that even possible, right? Yeah, exactly. Mike says, you know, am I or is the whole world insane, right? Yeah, it, it, that's, does, that's kind of like what Arthur is asking there, right? Because in fact, what Slarty Bartfaust is suggesting is that it's the latter, right, Mike? You know, it's the whole world that was insane. <laughs> it's not Arthur. Um, uh, it would be easier uh, and presumably quicker uh, for Arthur just to go mad now, 
right? Um, because this feels like madness, but in fact, the reality that he's being asked to accept um, has exactly that kind of disjunction with normal experience, right? No, it turns out uh, the whole world was insane, and you didn't, um, and you didn't realize it, right? Only one word was registering with Arthur. Mice, he said. Indeed, Earthman. Look, sorry, are we talking about the little white furry things with the cheese fixation and women standing on tables screaming in early 60s sitcoms? Slarty Bartfaust coughed politely. So again, notice his question here, right? He's, he's, he's wanting to make sure, maybe it's a vocabulary question, right? That, that could explain it. If, if, uh, if this non-Earth person, right, maybe doesn't have a perfect grasp of English and so uh, means something else. He's saying mice, but he means something else, right? So Arthur is trying to grasp on. We are talking about the same thing, right? You're not actually suggesting, are you, that mice were in charge of and indeed had paid for, in some sense, the entire Earth, right? Um, But of course, he goes on to explain. These creatures you call mice, you see, they're not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusion into our dimension of vastly hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings. The whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just a front. The old man paused, and with a sympathetic frown continued, They've been experimenting on you, I'm afraid. Arthur thought about this for a second, and then his face cleared. Ah, no, he said. I see the source of the misunderstanding now. No, look, you see, what happened was that we used to do experiments on them. They were often used in behavioral research, Pavlov and all that sort of stuff. So what happened was that the mice would be set all sorts of tests, learning to ring bells, run round mazes and things, so that the whole nature of the learning process could be examined. From our observations of their behavior, we were able able to learn all sorts of things about our own... Arthur's voice trailed off. Such subtlety, said Slarty Bartfast. One has to admire it. Um, I love this. Um, notice how Arthur is trying to combat the reversal of his perception of the entire world, right? Uh, first, his, his, you know, first after just like acknowledge, asking if it'd be easier if he just went mad now. He's hoping there's a vocabulary problem, right? Maybe we mean different things by the word mice. No, 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 it turns out, okay, yes, the, the, this, uh, it is about the, the cheese and the squeaking. It is, it is the same thing that we're talking about. Um, and he's trying to tell me that the mice were actually vastly hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings and that the cheese and the squeaking was a front. <laughs> that, that sentence... There are so many of Adams's sentences which I find so delightfully comical in ways that I don't even think I can explain, like that I can't really put my finger on. Uh, the whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just a front. Um, something about cheese and squeaking being, being a front I just find delightfully funny. Arthur's second hope, right? His second hope that he has not in that he is not in fact going crazy, that he can still reconcile what Slarty Bartfast is saying with reality as he knows it, right? Is that 
So okay, first, that Sari Bartfas was wrong in his vocabulary. He was just using the wrong word. And then that he was misunderstanding, right? Um, if, okay, so if, um, if Slardy Bartfast had heard some kind of garbled story about the experiments that were done, and he, but he just, it, it got garbled, right? It was, just, he got it backwards. We used to experiment on them. Um, I see the source of the misunderstanding. Uh, see the hopefulness of that sentence, right? There must I knew there must have been a misunderstanding, and now I can see where the misunderstanding must have come from. But then he talks himself right around into it, right? As he's halfway through his explanation, he begins to see how the reversal could be possible, right? If mice were vastly hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, then it is possible that by setting up the results of experiments in certain ways, they could manipulate the conclusions that we draw and thereby do experiments upon us, right? Um, and I love his... Um, um, I love his... Um, the way that he himself finally comes around to it. He he doesn't get it. Like, he he, he won't receive it from Slardy Bartfast. He's convinced that he knows what's real, right? Um and only finally talks himself into seeing the possibility. Um, so, we get the same thing here. In this conversation between Arthur and Slardy Bartfast, we get the same thing, essentially we get the sort of same exact piece of information uh, about the white mice and the experiments and things that we got from the narrator before, right? One of the things that's interesting to me about getting it both times is sort of seeing it the first time it's just stated in that smug and confident tone of the narrator as he's telling us what, or sort of letting us in on, though he doesn't let us all the way in, on what the real story is, right? What the truth behind our misperceptions is. And he is sort of more gentle, or rather we don't have a chance to kind of push back against the narrator in the way that Arthur is pushing back against Slardy Bartfast here. So it's interesting to see Arthur go through the process much more fully, right, that we were kind of pushed into before when the narrator just asked us to accept that in fact human beings were the third most intelligent species on the planet Earth, right? Um... Now, Caden, I agree that it is interesting that after all the strange things that he's seen, he refuses to believe this about the mice, right? But again, I think we can see why that is. It's not that it's so much stranger than everything else. Um, he doesn't, for instance, respond to Swarty Bartfrost by saying, I don't believe in vastly hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings. That couldn't happen, and creatures like that could never possibly interact, you know, with our dimension, right, with our world. Um, he doesn't respond that way because he doesn't seem to doubt things on that level. Um, and that, Caden, would seem to me to fit with the question of the things that he's seen, sort of like the level of weirdness, the way in which Arthur's own worldview has already expanded, right? I mean, he's he's he doesn't understand a lot of this stuff, but he accepts that it is. He doesn't He doesn't fight it in the same way that he was 
sort of resistant to Ford telling him that the world was going to end, right, uh, when Ford first uh, came and approached him about that back on the Earth. His, so his perspective is widened, but there's a difference between widening your perspective to realize that there's, you know, more, in, to, you know, in this world than you've dreamt of in your philosophy and believing that everything... And, and, and acknowledging... Uh, that everything you believe to be true is actually reversed, right? Um, accepting that in addition to what he knew about the Earth, there are also, you know, aliens with two heads and infinite improbability drives and, and all the other stuff that he's seen since he's been in Vogons and uh, their poetry and everything else he's been seeing in his travels. Accepting that those things also exist outside of planet Earth. Again, again, that's just a matter of panning out, right? And including more uh, in the scope of your vision. But it's a very different thing to say, oh yeah, and the Earth is not at all what you thought it was, right? And things, in fact, work completely differently there um, than you thought it did, Right, that's a very different proposition, and that is what Arthur is really uh, resistant to. Um, yeah, yeah, and Jonathan, you're right. Um, there is a series of events by which Arthur's illusions of importance are burst from the beginning. Right, thinking about Jonathan from the very beginning of his belief that, like, the destruction of his house was a really big deal. <laughs> right, um, all the way outwards. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Stephen, that's a good way of saying it. Everything else um, Arthur has seen can expand his worldview but still fit within it. This requires a total change uh, of his worldview. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Patricia adds, particularly since it bursts the illusions. Uh, the illusion that humans had the upper hand, right? Which is, Patricia, in its way, even more shocking, right, than kind of putting humans and the Earth in their relative position in the galaxy, right? Again, it's one thing to say, okay, so maybe humans aren't as advanced or as intelligent as these other species on other planets, right? But it's a totally different thing to say, you know, but you still want to say, but, but but at least we know, right? We understand Earth, and we know that we're in charge here on Earth, uh, even if maybe we don't compare to these other societies. But to learn that, in fact, that had been an illusion all along, again, totally, totally different situation, right? And that's what Arthur is wrestling with here. Um, let's keep going. When Arthur learns the truth about the Earth, right, when he learns the story about the computer and, you know, the 10 million year program and all that stuff, this is Arthur's response. You know, said Arthur thoughtfully, all this explains a lot of things. All through my life, I've had this strange, unaccountable feeling that something was going on in the world, something big, even sinister, and no one would tell me what it was. No, said the old man. That's just perfectly normal paranoia. Everyone in the universe has that. Everyone? said Arthur. Well, if everyone has that, perhaps it means something. Perhaps somewhere outside the universe we know. Maybe. Who cares? said Slarty Bardfast before Arthur got too excited. Um, once Arthur 
accepts the concept that the earth is not what he thought it was, right? Um, that there is this whole wider story. Of course, uh, the first thing he's groping with trying to understand is to to, to, to rearrange his sense of the hierarchy between humans and mice, right? The idea that, that mice were in charge of the world. Um, but of course, his view is challenged much more profoundly than that, right? What he's told is that the earth was a construct, right? The earth was a computer. And his response is to say, so it is significant, right? Arthur seems, still here kind of vaguely, I think, but he seems to have come to what seems to me one of the central ironies of the whole book, right? And we talked about this last time, I think. In my dim memories of last time, I think we talked about this, right? The fact that the very first thing that the book does is attempt to disabuse us of our mindless prejudice in favor of the earth, right? Uh, to, to prompt us to see the earth as a relatively unimportant little bit of rock uh, circling a, a, a quite insignificant star in an unfashionable backwater of the outer spiral arm, right? So that kind of reframing of our view of the earth is the very first thing that the book does. And now as we're coming to the end of the book, we find that in fact, no, the earth is the answer is 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 the whole point the earth had a purpose and the purpose of the earth was to solve the ultimate problem right the problem of the meaning of life that has plagued every species everywhere across the galaxy um so that in fact the irony is that it turns out that the earth actually was in that sense the most important planet in the galaxy and so everything that we thought, everything that we had been told was wrong about our thinking about the Earth turns out to have been wrong, right? And Arthur seems to have perceived that to some extent, right? Um, in some kind of vague way. Um, he immediately goes to, you know, that all through my life I've had this strange a feeling, a feeling that there's something going on, Right? It's like I knew that there was something, but I could never... No one would tell me what it was, right? I could never figure out what it was. Um, but there was some significance to everything. I just didn't have the whole picture. I couldn't put it together and come up with the answer. In fact, he lacked the perspective of the narrator, right? Who always knows the backstage version of everything and how everything fits together. And Arthur was like, because I didn't have that, right? I wasn't able to put, to put it together. But this confirms that I was right to think that way, right? Um, now, Slarty Bartfaust resists this. No, no. No, no. Um, why? Why does Slarney Bartfaust resist it? What's his argument against Arthur's conclusion? Arthur is being fairly logical all the way through this, right? Okay, so it turns out that the whole 
Earth had been engineered for a specific purpose. It did have an end, a goal, a function, right? Everything that happened in the Earth was directed towards an end. And I had a vague sense that that was the case, but I didn't have the key to understand what everything was going on. And he's like, no, no, no. No, that's just paranoia. Everybody has that kind of paranoia. And then Arthur's response is funny, but logical. Everybody has that. If everybody has that, then maybe it means something. Right? Um... Maybe we all have that paranoia for a reason, and there is a meaning behind the entire universe, right? Um, so again, what's the counter-argument there? He doesn't make one. Who cares? It's his counter-argument. Right. Um, exactly, Stephen. Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? He doesn't say Arthur's wrong. He doesn't attempt to refute him. Right. Um, he just is not interested in whether or not there is meaning in the world. Now we'll come back to this question a little bit later on. Um, but one thing that I would point to is notice how this question. This sort of insight of Arthur's. Um, This sentence that he doesn't finish. Perhaps somewhere outside the universe we know. That sentence, if he'd finished it, think of how that is potentially the answer to many things that we've seen, or sort of the explanation of many things that we've seen in this story. Right? Think of the amazing coincidences Right, which of course the infinite improbability drive is at the heart of. Think of Zephod Bibelbrox's unknown to himself stratagems and his goal to achieve something that he has concealed from himself. Right, what is going on? What is the purpose of a? But again, what we're left with in all those things is that there is a purpose. Right, we aren't privy to what it is. We're not insiders to it. But we we're, we know, we're told that there is uh, a purpose to all of it, right? Um, and we keep getting this pattern, and yet it's, it's not really explained, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, but Jonathan, yeah, Slarry Bartfast, he just doesn't care. It's not important to him, right? Um, he's not... Think, for instance, about um, the difference between Arthur and Slarry Bartfast here and Zephod and Ford with the Magrathia earlier on. Right when Zephod was like, "This is the last planet of Magrathia," and Ford's like, "No, no, it couldn't be." Remember, we were talking at the time about how, uh, especially in his in his in his own expressions, Zephod is building up the whole mythic significance. Remember, we were talking about that a lot a couple of weeks back. Well, 
like ages ago now, um, uh, about the mythic significance of stuff, right? This this sense of like the that you know there's something just there's something awe-inspiring here. There's something that is more important than even it seems. This is not just any other planet, right? The, uh, the, the, the association of awe and significance with this. There's something really transcendently important uh, about this planet. And Ford's resistant to that, right? Ford's like, nah, no, it's, there's no way it's Magrathia, right? And he keeps shooting down that sort of, uh, um, you know, mythic mode that Zephod keeps uh, uh, keeps slipping into there. But again, that's not the same as here, right? There it was Zephod saying, this is a really big deal. And Ford saying, nah, nah, it's really not, right? This is Arthur saying, hey, I think there's a really big deal here. I think that there's, um, if it's true that there really was something going on in the world, right? If th- planet Earth was all clicking together for a particular reason, right? It was running a big program that I didn't know about, um, and I had the sense that there was something going on, but didn't know what it was. If that's true, well, then maybe the whole universe is like that, and everybody has this sense because it's happening everywhere. And Slarty Bardfast, instead of, ju- instead of responding like Ford, right, did to Zephod and saying, no, no, I don't think that's the case, right? No, I think it's all... Um, I don't think there's any reason because Ford, you know, was was had cause to be skeptical, right? Um, but Slotty Bartfoss doesn't do that. He's just like, who cares? Maybe, who cares? Right? He's just uninterested. He's just disengaged from the question um, in a way that utterly fails to actually respond to Arthur's insight at all, leaving us, of course in a um, totally different position, right? Um, Yeah. Um, David, I agree. David Atlee is saying, I wonder if Arthur is right. Is his status as one of two survivors of Earth giving him some insight into the broader workings of the universe? David, that's, of course, the really tantalizing thing here, right? It's not only that Arthur has just had revealed to him that there was, in fact, a purpose behind everything, that everything that happened on the planet Earth was all working together for this higher purpose. Um, he's just had that revealed to him. So he's not, it's not, he's not merely extrapolating from that, right? You can also say, what was the purpose towards which everything was working on the planet Earth? Well, that was to understand the ultimate question behind everything, right? To understand the, the meaning of life, right? And, of course... Frankie Mouse and Benji Mouse are going to want to dissect his brain because they believe that the answer to, or, you know, like that, the question, you know, that the solution to the problem of the meaning of life may well be encoded in Arthur's brain. So, David, absolutely, we have, uh, therefore, that sort of extra level of reason to believe that Arthur's insight might have something going for it, right? Um, I mean, the whole, the way that this all is set up leads us to um, at least be open to that uh, uh, to that to that possibility. Um, the the strange, unaccountable feeling is very likely. Do, you know, we're going to be told that his brain is probably programmed, and so it, it has the impression 
of the question on it, right? Uh, the um, that there's like the fingerprint of the conclusion that the great biological computer was coming to, right? The great messiah computer was coming to um, has left its imprint on Arthur's brain. That's why Frankie and Benji want to cut it up. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, More on the cynicism of Slarty Bartfast. He gave a hollow laugh. What does it matter? Science has achieved some wonderful things, of course, but I'd far rather be happy than right any day. And are you? No, that's where it falls down, of course. Pity, said Arthur with sympathy. It sounded like quite a good lifestyle otherwise. Somewhere on the wall a small white light flashed. Come on, said Slarty Bartfaust. You are to meet the mice. Your arrival on the planet has caused considerable excitement. It has already been hailed, so I gather, as the third most improbable event in the history of the universe. What were the first two? Oh, probably just coincidences, said Slarty Bartfast carelessly. Um, yeah, Lance, I love the fact that, having revealed the fact that these two white mice, the two pet mice of, uh, of Trillian, right, um, are actually projections into this world of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, um, they're still referred to by their mouse names, right? They're still called Benji and Frankie uh, when we... Uh, uh, they even like answer to those names and introduce themselves that way. Um, which, yeah, Lance, I also find that really funny. Um, so look how this passage supplements the previous one. Again, looking at their two different perspectives right? Um, I'd far rather be happy than right any day. Saudi Bartfoss says that, and Arthur gets into it, right? It sounds like quite a good lifestyle, right? I'd rather be happy than right. Okay, yeah. So, remember, Arthur was just speculating about that there might be some, you know, great secret that, uh, uh, you know, we just can't grasp Right, but 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 is definitely out there. Um, but he's willing to give the lifestyle of "I'd rather be happy than right" a try. Right? Okay, I'd rather be happy than right. Um, and are you? No. <laughs> right. That's where that's where his uh, his philosophy, I guess, all falls down. Right. Um, he says he'd rather be happy than right, but then again, he's not happy, right? Uh, so where does this put us back, right? Um, where does this put us back to? Yeah, Mike says that the dolphins succeed at being happy, but the mice fail at being right. Mike, I think remembering the dolphins is really important here, right? Um, the dolphins clearly exemplify I'd rather be happy than right, right? Um, they're not going to compete with humans. They'd rather be happy, right? Um, they're just mucking about in the water having a good time. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's the dolphin's lifestyle. I think that you're absolutely right about that. Um, but again, where it comes down to Arthur versus Slarty Bartfast, um, Arthur's maybe right, maybe. Um, 
the example of the earth suggests that maybe he is right, that there is this meaning out there, that there is this purpose, that there is an answer, both a question and an answer, right, about life, the universe, and everything, um, and that it is knowable, and that but if only we could get there, if only we could see it, that the meaning of life does exist, that people could be happy. Remember, everybody was unhappy most of the time, was part of the problem of the universe back at the beginning of the book. Um, but it could be, it's maybe, a, maybe it is actually a soluble problem, right? He's willing to give better to be happy than right a go, except it doesn't work. So then what, right? Um, then we're back to, uh, to what? So, okay, Slarty Bardfast, you'd rather be happy than right, but you're not happy. So let's be right instead. How about, how about that? Right. Um, but, and once again, we see Slarty Bartfast's apathy. His arrival. And remember all of that messianic language, right? Um, about the computer, which, of course, turns out to be the Earth, right? The Earth turns out to be the Messiah of computers. And, uh, and now his coming, right? Arthur himself turns out to be this, like, quasi-messianic figure, right? Um, your arrival on the planet has caused considerable excitement, right? Arthur's arrival, Arthur Dent's arrival on Magrathea is being hailed as the third most improbable event in the history of the universe. Um, and... Sardi Barfas then immediately dismisses it, right? It's probably... The first two were probably just coincidences, right? Um, By asking what were the first two, Arthur seems to be wanting to put his own arrival into perspective, right? Like, okay, if my arrival on the planet is a really big deal, like, what kind of big deal is it? Like, could you cue me... Could you, you know, clue me in into, like, the genre of big deal that it is, right? What were the other... What were the first two things? You know, what... what, uh, what were associated with, you know, those first, the two most improbable events in the history of the universe. Um, so that maybe he can understand what he is in for better. Um, uh, now, Brian, you're right. It is the third most improbable, not the third most important. It's not saying that it's the most important thing, the third most important thing ever to happen. Um, no, it's not. But, given... But I'd actually hold out for important, really, in the context, right? Because we're told that, well, again, it's it's the meaning of life, right? By his arrival here and now, Arthur has, it's conceivably, at least here it looks possible, that it is in Arthur's power to solve the problems of the sufferings of the universe, right? So that the hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings can get back to Brockian ultra cricket, but um, but anyway, uh, it, it, it's it's you know everyone is unhappy much of the time, um, but uh, now it is possible that he can solve all of that, right? Um, 
<laughs> Sharon is suggesting that me finishing all my slides uh, would uh, rank as maybe the fifth most improbable event in the history of the universe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so Brian, I, I, you're right that it is improbable and not important. And yet, given the significance of what we're talking about, like with Arthur himself, right, the, the insight that Arthur has, that there is meaning and purpose to the entire universe, right? And the reasons that we have from within the narrative, the messianic computer whose, uh, uh, you know, whose response is probably encoded in Arthur's brain that we have for thinking that maybe what Arthur's thinking is relevant, right, is, uh, is in fact legitimate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Brian, no, Slarty Bardfoss doesn't... Uh, okay, yes, you're right that Slarty Bardfoss doesn't necessarily equate improbable with important, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's what he's resistant to. So, so I don't think, I think he just doesn't care, right? Um, again, oh, probably just coincidences. Probably? The irony of the word probably when applied to the two most improbable events in the history of the universe? How can you say what the two most improbable events in the universe probably were, right? Odds are that they were coincidences, right? I mean, like, how can you even construct that sentence? Um, Well, you can only construct that sentence if you're not paying particular attention even to what you're saying. I mean, he just doesn't care. He's just not interested. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, he just wants to be left alone to make fjords. That's exactly it. Um, uh, that's how he tries to cope, right? Just make fjords, right? And, uh, uh, and, and, and not care about other things. Um, but, but again, Swarty Bartfast's apathy is not, uh, uh, is not a counter-argument, right? Um, Okay, let's keep going. This is in that strange... um, strange interjection, right? Remember when... um, when Arthur says that he seems to be having problems with his lifestyle, and then the narrator tells us again one of these things that, like, how on earth could the narrator possibly know this? Um, that those words of Arthur's passed through a freak wormhole, right, to another galaxy, and uh, you know, came in at this, and, and and what we get, of course, is the the description of an incredibly improbable event, right that Arthur's words at that moment, and frankly, the most non-portentous thing that Arthur says in that whole conversation, right, uh, where he says he seems to be having trouble with his lifestyle, um, uh, he, um, that those words are by this absolutely freak chance conveyed to this one point uh, in this other galaxy where these two 
the the two enemy chieftains are meeting and and i absolutely love the description of the two enemy chieftains is one of my favorite pieces i think it's my favorite description uh, resplendent in his bejeweled battle shorts is one of my favorite phrases uh uh in the entire uh in the entire book um but uh anyway um we get so the, the description of the two, and it turns out that Arthur's words are in the in the language of the people listening. Uh, the deadliest insult that they can possibly uh, say, and so it causes this enormous war. Right. This whole digression is very clearly associated with the question of these improbable events, right? Arthur's coming was said to be the second most improbable event in the history of the universe. I wonder if that business about his uh, words going across the the, the, the galaxies and uh, happening to cause a war in the way that they do might be perhaps uh, one of the top two. I don't know uh, where it ranks exactly. Um uh, but it certainly uh, it certainly seems like uh, a, an incredibly improbable thing. Um, but this, of course, is the conclusion of this anecdote. Eventually, of course, after their galaxy had been decimated over a few thousand years, it was realized that the whole thing had been a ghastly mistake, and so the two opposing battle fleets settled their few remaining differences in order to launch a joint attack on our own galaxy, now positively identified as the source of the offending remark. For thousands more years, the mighty ships tore across the empty wastes of space and finally dived screaming onto the first planet they came across, which happened to be the Earth where due to a terrible miscalculation of scale, the entire battle fleet was accidentally swallowed by a small dog. Those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this sort of thing is going on all the time, but that we are powerless to prevent it. It's just life, they say. What do we do with this? It's just life. Is this the narrator agreeing with Slarty Bartfast? Arthur's wrong. There's no real plan, right? There's no big purpose behind things. This kind of thing is happening all the time. We're powerless to prevent this kind of complex interplay of cause and effect. Mike hears the just in its just life as indicating a, you know, a, like, let's not think about this, right? Um, now, I made the same joke that many of you can't resist. In my subtitle, of course, to this slide, Don't Talk to Me About Life, uh, I can't resist. So, the relevance of this anecdote to that last conversation between Arthur and Slarty Bardfast seems to me, the fact that it's relevant seems fairly clear, right? Um, but I also can't get past that connection with Marvin and Marvin, uh, 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 Marvin's attitude towards life, right? 
Um, Don't talk to me about life, says Marvin. Why? Why doesn't Marvin want you to talk to him about life? Why not? (laughs) Because he has pains running down the diodes in his left side, Arthur. Yes. Yes. Um, but more, but more, I mean it. Why doesn't, why doesn't Marvin want you to talk to him about life? Don't talk to me about life. Why not? Because he doesn't have it, Julie suggests, and Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because life's too depressing. David, remember, he has um, a a real people personality, right? Um, He has been given something that is... He has artificial life, right? That is more like real life, more like a real human personality, more like real human experience than most robots have, right? And his proximity to human experience leads him to loathe it, right? Um, He considers it incredibly depressing. Um, And yes, Arthur, good. Arthur says that as a robot with a brain the size of a planet, um, he is put to menial labor. And and, his perspective is that life is meaningless and random, right? His own sense of purposelessness, right? That there is so much that he could do and that he's never given anything interesting to do, right? Um, He has no purpose, he, um, call that job satisfaction, because I don't, right? Um, that's the way Marvin goes on, right? He, he, he does not have any job satisfaction with life, right? But again, that's about purpose. He has no purpose. Um, he is aware of capacity. He's always talking about his capability with the stuff that he can do. Uh, but he can do so much that he gets bored, uh, and yet he's never asked to do anything or to accomplish anything. Um, and yes, his bitterness, Rachel, towards the doors that are happy every time they open because they have job satisfaction, right? Um, it is the delight of those doors to open and close for you, right? I just... Ah, <laughs> the sound that the doors make. <laughs> when they open and close. Um, they're simple, right? They have a purpose. But notice how this all begins to come together, right? The doors were designed to fulfill a function in the heart of gold by the designers, right? And whether or not you think they need to be first up against the wall when the revolution comes... There was a a higher purpose 
that the doors were fit within, right? Marvin does not fit in that... There is no purpose for Marvin that matches him, right? Um, In a sense, he has a perception which I guess you could say is... Well, it's parallel, maybe kind of anti-parallel in some way to Arthur's, right? Arthur has that perception that there's something going on, that there's a purpose to the, you know, that the whole world, maybe even the whole universe, he always kind of suspected that the whole world had some kind of purpose, and now he finds that confirmed, and he suspects now that maybe the whole universe has some purpose to it. Um, and Marvin feels, it has no purpose, right? Um, but it's his awareness of his own lack of function that he that there's like a purpose that he could have that there's stuff that he could accomplish um but that there's no way that he can uh th- but you know he has no real probability of being able to do that um yeah yeah um Yes, so Mike, I agree. Marvin's answer to the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is that there isn't any meaning. Yes. Yeah. Yes and no, right? It isn't that he has analyzed all the data, right? He's analyzed everything that Arthur is pointing to and has concluded that Arthur is wrong. Right? That's not it. But he's also not exactly like Slarty Bartfaust either. Just not caring. Right? Um, Because, of course, that's one of the ironies of Marvin's situation. And who was talking about this before? Yes. Um, Mike, you hit upon a really important point before. Um there's intrinsic irony when Marvin says to you don't talk to me about life it's an ironic statement because he wants to talk to you about life right he wants to complain one of his biggest complaints is that nobody will listen to him complain Um, he would love to talk about life all the time right um he so he's not like Slarty Bartfast, simply not caring, right? He he does care. He wants to complain about it, right? Um, he does care that there doesn't seem to be any purpose to his life, and he'll tell you at, uh, at great length all about it, right? Um, and yeah, Mike, he analyzed all the molecules in Arthur's brain just to amuse himself. The molecules in Arthur's brain which contain the meaning of life, possibly, in which the meaning of life is encoded, right? But then he got bored after he did that, right? Um, Stephen says the uh, answer to the meaning of life doesn't really apply to Marvin. 
Yeah, at least he's convinced that it doesn't. That's why he doesn't care. That's why he's not interested, right? That's why he... Well, but again, I'm not even sure it's quite fair to say that he's concluded that there's no meaning, right? Um, he, he, his purpose is to complain, right? Um, just as the door, you know, has its satisfaction. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he's fulfilling his job. He's doing his role, right? Uh, he doesn't get much job satisfaction out of it, right? But that's part of his job, in a sense. And we get, of course, on this point, the final irony at the end of the book. Um, by standing around and complaining and being unpleasant, he saves all of their lives, right? By getting the policeman's ship to commit suicide. Uh, um, uh, when he <laughs> explained his philosophy of life to it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that is Marvin's purpose. Marvin's purpose is not to have no purpose. Marvin's purpose is to be unhappy. I mean, like, it's, it's... I'm not saying it doesn't suck. I'm not saying it's not... He's not drawn the short straw uh, and that his his programmers probably deserve to be first up against the wall when the revolution comes. But I'm saying that seems to be his role. Um, he's filling it. Anyway, um, but back to this digression. The digression about the... about. Uh, uh, loose lips, sinking ships, and how uh, how big of a problem that can sometimes be, right? Um, this whole anecdote would seem to be a contradiction or a, a counterindication um, against uh, Arthur's suspicion that there is a meaning behind the entire universe, right? Um, because surely somebody would say this event, right? Uh, the fact that this fluke occurrence could create all of these vast and ironic consequences, it must mean something, right? It's just life. Is uh, what those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say. Um, but of course, one wonders if the people who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe, one wonders what sort of parties those people get invited to. Doesn't one? Uh, how much do they really know, actually? And how much are they like Slarty Bartfast? Um, I'm not sure where I end up, right? 
after this incredibly long digression, not incredibly long, I mean, it's not like George R. R. Martin long, but it's, it's, uh, it's still a, a, a substantively long digression. And then we're just told at the end, it's just life. Move on. There's nothing to see here. The whole point is that even in something like this, something as crazy and wild and spectacular as this, um, there's nothing to see here. That doesn't sound too simplistic. Doesn't that sound a little slarty Bartfast, a little who cares? Maybe who cares, right? Um, yeah, and Arthur, I agree. Given the mocking of philosophers earlier, the idea that scholars would just say that's life is particularly amusing. Yes, we have already had room fondle and magic thighs, right? As uh, as our example, of, those are our the, our paragons of philosophy, right? The most truly interesting pundits the universe has ever known, um, and uh, yeah, it's just life is the commentary of people like that, apparently. Um, uh, exactly, Mike. It's their job to delve more deeply. Remember, wasn't it Rumfondel who says, like, uh, you know, leave the eternal verities to us, right? Um, uh, you want to check your legal position, you do, mate. Um, and seriously, the their, these philosophers, their response is, it's just life. That's their conclusion. Um, it does not seem very satisfactory. Um, which is not surprising, given the very little that Room Fondle and Magic Thighs did uh, uh, seemed very satisfactory. Speaking of unsatisfactory people, Arthur is shocked and appalled at Frankie and Benji Mouse and what their plan is, right? Um, that what they want from him and from his brain is a, an ultimate question that sounds good, they've just said, right? Something that sounds good, exclaimed Arthur. A question to the ultimate answer that sounds good from a couple of mice? The mice bristled. Well, I mean, yes, idealism, yes, the dignity of pure research, and yes, the pursuit of truth in all its forms, but there comes a point, I'm afraid, where you begin to suspect that if there's any real truth, that it's that the entire multidimensional infinity of the universe is almost certainly being run by a bunch of maniacs. And if it comes to a choice between spending yet another ten million years finding that out, and on the other hand, just taking the money and running, then I, for one, could do with the exercise, said Frankie. But started Arthur hopelessly. Um, <laughs> I, for one, could do with the exercise. I like, uh, I, I always like the ending of that sentence. An- another classic, long, uh, Adams-ish sentence, uh, which uh, comes to a surprising conclusion. Um, notice the gap here between Frankie and Benji Mouse and Arthur, right? Arthur is still... He's the only one here who is really taking seriously the pursuit of the question to the ultimate answer, right? Um, And Frankie Mouse is completely cynical, right? He acknowledges idealism, the dignity of pure research, the pursuit of truth in all its forms, right? He acknowledges those things. But at the end of the day, he'd rather just take the money and run, right? Forget all of those things. Why? Why? Why would he rather take the money and run 
than pursue idealism, the dignity of pure research, and the pursuit of truth in all its forms. Because he thinks he knows the ultimate answer already. Right? Right? That's just life, Kate says. Yeah. There comes a point, he says, where you begin to suspect that if there's any real truth, it's that the entire multidimensional infinity of the universe is almost certainly being run by a bunch of maniacs. That's what life is, according to Frankie and Benji. Right? Their perspective is very different from Slardy Bartfaust's, different from Marvin's, right? Um, but that's, that's Frankie Mouse's perspective. At the end of the day, he thinks that... Uh, and notice how this fits in with Arthur's own theory, right? Arthur's thinking somewhere beyond this universe, the universe that we know, there may be a purpose, there may be a meaning. Um, and Frankie is saying, if there is... Right? If there is something outside this universe that we know, if there is something behind all of this, it's a maniac. Right? It's nonsensical. Um, he, there comes a point where you begin to suspect that that's the case. He says. And when you come to that point, what do you do? Well, you've got one of two choices. You can either choose idealism, the dignity of pure research, and the pursuit of truth, right? Uh, That is, try to find out what really is behind the entire multidimensional infinity of the universe, right? Um, May turn out to be a bunch of maniacs, may not, right? It may only seem that way. Um, says the white mouse who turns out to have been running all the experiments in the first place, right? Remember the whole reversal that is already implicit here in Frankie Mouse saying this in the first place. Um, Or you just say it's not worth it, right? And you say, okay, I suspect that there's no really satisfying answer, that it's all just crazy, so I can either just go save time and go mad now, right? Or I can take the money and run. I can come back to the small green pieces of paper, Mike. Which, of course, we know were not a satisfactory answer to the problem, right? That's, of course, this the irony of the Frankie and Benji position. They're just focused on money, on the small green pieces of paper. Um, which we know that was established fairly clearly at the beginning is not the solution, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. And Kate, I too don't know that Frankie and Benji have the right of it, based on everything that has happened so far. Uh, Nothing, really, at all, in the society of the so-called hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings has really inspired confidence, right? From the interaction with uh, with Vroom Fondle and Magic Thighs up through, I mean, everything, right? And Frankie and Benji Mouse are sort of the final. Uh, you know, the idea that we're going to substitute for this, the 10 million year program being run by the messianic computer, right? Uh, and the thing that it was going to reveal, and we're going to substitute in for that this kind of really vague uh, 
you know, how many roads must a man walk down? Like that's that's their answer, right? They, that's the what they're going to claim the computer came up with in 10 million years. Um, uh, you know, and yeah, Jennifer, exactly. That that uh, uh, that girl back on Earth was going to say something five minutes later, right? There was an answer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's this choice, right? When you come to suspect this, now, notice he doesn't exactly say that there's no reality behind it, right? That it's all totally meaningless. Um, there is something behind it, but the things behind it are probably insane, right? Okay, all right. Um, anyway. One of the final scenes, right? Um, as Ford alone is interested to figure out why on earth the police ship died, right, as they're leaving Magrathia. Um, Ford could sense it and found it most mysterious. A ship and two policemen seemed to have gone spontaneously dead. In his experience, the universe simply didn't work like that. And notice, how is it that the universe simply doesn't work? You notice what happened? They were rescued? Arthur, how has the plot of this story been tied up? Uh, the story has been tied up by this... It's not just a deus ex machina. It's deus ex machina squared. Right? They're all about to be set upon by the medical, the Magrathian medical staff, and Arthur's going to have his brain diced. Right? When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, deus ex machina... Right, the cops show up, uh, and everybody scatters. Right, but then they're pinned down and trapped by the cops who are having more fun than they admit, shooting at them. Right, uh, and then the, the policemen all of a sudden spontaneously drop dead, and they're saved. Right, um, and the universe simply doesn't work like that. Right. Um, so this like deus ex machina squared that happens. Right. Um, and just to clarify, um, I don't want to take things for granted. Deus ex machina, what that means. Right. That expression, deus ex machina, um, it means this sort of miraculous intervention that just sets everything right. And specifically, which is designed to like... Um, it's like what Sam thinks happened at the field of Cormallon, right? When Sam wakes up on the field of Cormallon and says, is everything sad going to come untrue, right? That's the kind of resolution, plot resolution that the deus ex machina is referring to. When, like, at the end of a very bad, like, 18th century play, 17th, 18th century play, um, everything's going wrong and everything looks like it's terrible and everybody is headed to a tragic end and then a god shows up and, like, waves a wand and everything is fixed, and then everybody's happy and every, everybody lives happily ever after. That's deus ex machina. Um, and the machina, the machine involved, is, uh, uh, is, is 
well, like the machinery by which the god is lowered down onto the onto the stage, you know, and 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 uh, and appears. Um, both of these things, both the sudden appearance of the cops to save them from Frankie and Benji Mouse, to save Arthur at least from Frankie and Benji Mouse, and the sudden spontaneous death of the policemen and their uh, ship. And again, Ford is is going on and on about this just, like, it's so unlikely that their life support would just spontaneously give out like that, right? It's like the, the universe simply doesn't work like that. This doesn't just happen, right? The other three could sense it too, but they could sense the bitter cold even more and hurried back into the heart of gold, suffering from an acute attack of no curiosity. There is a mystery to be sensed, right? Here in this last scene, there's a mystery to be sensed. Ford senses it. The other three all sense it as well. What really happened here? This, this is a, a vastly, vastly improbable event, right? There has to be a cause. There has to be a reason behind it. There has to be an explanation. Um, it has to be part of a, some other larger story, Right, it does. This this d- doesn't just happen for no reason, and it turns out there was a reason. Right, the ship committed suicide when Marvin uh, talked to it. Um, so yeah, Kimber says, "Is Marvin both the god and the machine in this example?" Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, um, But the two things I'd emphasize here about this. First, he's right. We end with this extremely improbable event, which he refuses to accept as just a coincidence. Probably just coincidence, as Slardy Bartfast might say, right? And Ford refuses to accept it as coincidence, and of course learns it wasn't coincidence, right? At least not the deaths of the policemen weren't coincidences, right? Not exactly. Um, but the other thing I would emphasize so again think about how that maps back onto the other things that we've been looking at but then the second thing I would point to is that there's this choice all four of them have this perception that there's something going on here right? that there's something more that there's something mysterious at work but three of them choose just to not pay any attention to it, and instead to just go in out of the cold, right? It's not exactly like taking the money and running like Frankie and Benji Mouse, um, but it's in uh, um, it's in the same kind of direction, right? So, okay, um, I have finished my slide. So, where does this end up, right? Where where does this uh, where where do we end up at the end of this book, right? Um, I think we can go one way or the other with it, right? And that's the thing that we get at the end. What is dramatized in the end, and not just in this last scene, but throughout this last sequence that we've been looking at here, what we keep getting are these different ways you can respond to the situation, right? Um, You can conclude that there is real significance to the universe, 
right? There's something really behind it. There really is a purpose. There really is a solution to the problem of unhappiness. There really is an answer to life, the universe, and everything, or at least a question that makes sense of that answer, right? That stuff is all really possible. You can conclude that, right? You could, you could say that this book is arguing, right? Is suggesting that there is something, that there is an answer. Uh, might be hard to know, right? It might be improbable to find out unless you happen to be the narrator who apparently knows everything. Um, uh, but um, uh, the book doesn't let us leave behind this. It continues to give us this sense of, but there's something else going on. Right? There's, an, there's, there's an explanation behind things. There's more to this than it looks like. Whether it's things like Zaphod's brain with his initials burned, what's that about? Right? What's the story? What's, uh, what is his purpose? Why is he doing what he's doing? We don't know. At the end, even at the end of the book, we don't know. Right? Um, what is the, the, the question to the answer of life, the universe, and everything? Um, you know, all these things. Um, uh, one so one one response which seems to me a very legitimate response which the book invites is to say so there is meaning right there is purpose there is an answer there is something there behind all these things that we get excited like arthur that we perceive the mythic significance of stuff that we um we recognize that there is something real something important beyond all these things or we could instead just choose to have another pangalactic gargle blaster, right? We could choose to get the exercise and take the money and run. Um, and you think of all of those things. One of the, Remember one of the things that we were looking at way at the beginning is how one of the first kind of curiosities or ironies of that the first movement of the book, again, remember the first movement of the book I'm arguing is that that kind of distancing us from the earth, that sort of teasing us for thinking that the earth is super important, right? And, and uh, challenging that and widening our viewpoint. Um, and one of the initial ironies of that I was arguing that we get, even in the very first section that we were looking at, is as soon as we do begin to widen our view and see, oh my goodness, there's so much more to the galaxy than the Earth that we know, one of the first things that we notice is that, in fact, it's actually all a lot like the Earth, right? And that is born very strongly home to us with the Vogon constructor fleet, right? The, the, the absurdly close parallel between uh, the destruction of Arthur's house and by the big yellow bulldozer uh, and the destruction of the Earth by the yellow Vogon constructor fleet, right? Um, you know, with the whole posting of the sign and, you know, in an inaccessible location and all that stuff, right? And bureaucracy. Um, you know, all of that... Um, uh, all of that... stuff, right? And then, like, all the, you know, the the stuff about drinks and having a good time, all of the sort of social assumptions that underlie the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which are so much like, you know, sort of standard Earth society, you know, Western culture, what it means to have a good time, um, you know, why the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sells so much better than uh, uh, the Encyclopedia Galactica, because it tells you how to mix a pan-galactic gargle blaster, um, 
so again, one of those things that we noticed is that when we do widen the view, what we find is that there's a lot of similarity everywhere, that people sort of uh, uh, have that same reaction and, or, you know, and, and have these, the same point of view in common. And what is that point of view, right? In the end, don't care about things, right? Whatever. Just have a good time, you know, uh, enjoy yourself and you know, drink up. Um, uh, yeah, the same issues everywhere in the universe, just scale it up or scale it down. Uh, uh, Kimber, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer, what a wonderful way to think about it. Jennifer says, um, She summarizes the end by saying, you know, the one way of thinking of this question, sort of the question that the book seems to pose to us at the end is, are you going to be a human, a dolphin, or a white mouse? Right? Um, I really like that, Jennifer. Right? Two of the options seem to not really take the purpose very seriously. Right? Um, to be a dolphin is just to muck about in the water having a good time. Right? Uh, to be a white mouse is to ultimately just think you understand enough to know that you'd rather just take the money and run than really figure it out, right? Um, or to be a human like Arthur Dent and uh, suspect that there really is meaning that really is accessible, right? Um, and the thing, I think at the end, I don't know that this book... I don't see that this book has a strong preference among those three, necessarily. Um, I think that in some ways the easiest reading of this book, the simplest reading of this book, would be simply to say that if you think there's meaning to think, that it's making fun of you. That in the end, if you think like Arthur Dent, you're the one that's being laughed at at the end, right? That really, it's the dolphins and Frankie and Benji Mouse that have it right. Um, but I honestly, I don't buy that. That is not, that does not to me um, feel like where this book pushes us frankly I really don't see it um, I uh, the the story too persistently I, I don't feel that you know the Arthur Dents of the book are being laughed at consistently enough right um do we really think that Frankie and Benji Mouse at the end of the day have it right? That theirs is the point of view that the book is really behind? That if we leave the book saying, yeah, I think Frankie and Benji Mouse have it right, that we're comfortable with that, that, that the book isn't laughing at us for that, right? I, I don't think so. I think we're laughing at Frankie and Benji Mouse at the end. I think they look absurd. Um... So, yeah, I, uh, so remember back to the very first class and the, one of the first questions I was asking, whom are we laughing at, right? Uh, at, at whom and at what are we being invited to, to laugh? And when I try to come back and apply that question at the again, especially thinking in the context of this larger issue, um... You can make the joke either way, right? All of those perspectives are potentially funny, 
there's a funny side to any one of those answers, right? Um, and it makes me wonder if, uh, um, you know, is, is Adams just messing with everyone, right? With anyone who is satisfied with any one of those three answers uh, to, uh, to, to, to the question, any one of those three reactions to the problem? Um, I don't know. I mean, I find the end of this book very indeterminate, of course. And I understand, I know, yeah, as we'll talk about next time, the radio drama, you know, the whole arc of the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this book is only based on the first few episodes um, uh, of, the, of the, the, the radio series. It's a 12-part radio series, as I recall, um, and it's only the first, like, four that are this book, and then we get to the, uh, to the restaurant at the end of the universe, um, uh, where the story is going to go next. Uh, you don't have to listen to all 12, necessarily, uh, uh, if you don't want to. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus our discussion next time on the early episodes, which are directly related to this story, um, and, you know, out of which this book grew. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't see who this is yet, but uh, uh, the idea that we're, at the end, we're meant to laugh at ourselves because we probably all have our, our Frankie Mouse, Marvin, Arthur, and Ford moments. Um, yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, that it's, that Adams, it's Kate, yeah. Um, uh, you know, Kate arguing that Adams is sort of encouraging a healthy laughter at all of it, right? And that seems to me to, that seems to me to, uh, um, uh, to fit, really. Um, anyway, okay. So next time we'll look at the radio adaptation. Again, what I'm especially interested in, I want to do some comparison and contrast. Look at the story as it's told in the radio drama. Just the part that's, again, parallel with the book. I don't want to deal with necessarily the whole thing. Um, you know, maybe we can kind of come back to that if we read more of the books in the series or whatever. But uh, but for this book, I want to focus on the... Par- because I'm, I'm really interested in how... Looking at how this story grows out of, how the published book is related to that early story, because I think it's, it's, it's really interesting when we look at the two of them together. So um, we will... Um, We'll do that next time, uh, and that will be the end of our discussion of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you very much, and we are done five minutes early, which, considering that I started like ten minutes late, come on, look at this, we're, we've, we've, uh, look at it. an hour forty-five. See, I told you, almost infinitely improbable, but we finished all my slides, and we got done early, just like I said, so... There you are. <laughs> Improbability overload, says Sharon. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. I will see you guys next week for a discussion of the radio broadcast, then a week off, and then we'll start the War of the Ring after that. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>